great to see you all this morning. Hope you had a wonderful New Year, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. We're excited about uh, we're excited about the year ahead. We're excited about uh, what we're going to be able to do, the differences that we're going to be able to make, the people that we're going to be able to touch and minister to, and help, and the lives that are going to be changed. And uh, it's a pretty big responsibility and it's a pretty big calling and Pam and I know that even though we get to be the leaders and the pastors here that we are not BUCC. Altogether, we are BUCC and we're excited about that. Our scripture this morning comes from Matthew, the second chapter. You're welcome to read it along with me if you'd like. It says that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the territory of Judea, during the rule of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. They asked, where's the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east and we've come to honor him. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled and everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him. He gathered all the chief priests and the legal experts and asked them where the Christ was to be born. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and found out from them the time when the star had first appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search carefully for the child. When you've found him, report to me so that I too may go and honor him. When they heard the king, they went, and look, the star they'd seen in the east went ahead of them until it stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother. Falling to their knees, they honored him. Then they opened their treasure chest and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by another route. No scoundrels. A few weeks ago, um, I told you about how when I was growing up, our parents would wait until about two weeks before Christmas before they'd let us put up our Christmas tree. What I didn't tell you was how quickly after Christmas that tree came down. Our Christmas tree didn't stay up very long. <laughs> My mom liked a nice orderly house. And that was a challenge sometimes, of course, with four little rambunctious bishop boys running around all the time, tearing through the house. But as much as she could, she always made sure to keep a clean and a tidy house. Everything had its place. That meant that as long as that Christmas tree was up in the living room, that meant that whatever sat there the rest of the year had to be tucked away somewhere else. Mom was always ready to get things back in their proper place as soon as Christmas was over. And at our house, Christmas was over on December 26th, if not on the evening of the 25th. <laughs> and when Christmas was over at our house, that meant the Christmas tree had to come down. We knew the song, uh, The Twelve Days of Christmas. We even sang it, but it never occurred to us that December the 25th was the first day of Christmas. 
we thought that Christmas Day was about 12 drummers drumming, not about the partridge in a pear tree. Uh, but Christmas was a December thing, and, and we didn't even realize that Christmas actually went all the way into January. We didn't realize that, but of course, a lot of other folks did. That being said, I know that a lot of folks have already moved on. Christmas happened about two weeks ago, and for a lot of folks, it ended when all of the presents were opened. For most, the magic of the season is over. The stores have already put up their Valentine's Day decorations and candy and treats and cards and things, so why should we linger on a holiday that happened last year? Mason and I have five nativity sets at our house. One that I've had for years that I really love. We, we display it on a table just inside our front door. One that I bought back when uh, I was working at, in the mayor's office at City Hall, and I bought it because somebody called the mayor's office and asked if we had a nativity set in City Hall. I told them that we did, but then I discovered that we didn't, so I went out and bought one and put it in City Hall just to make sure that I wasn't lying to one of the mayor's constituents. <laughs> because some reporter somewhere is going to call and say, where's that nativity that you told them that you had? And then we have a really small one that was gifted to us. And I mean, it's really, really small, tiny, small. Mason and I play this game during uh, the Christmas season where we take turns hiding the baby Jesus. <laughs> we hide him from one another. And then when the other person finds him, we shout and praise the Lord because they got saved when they found Jesus. <laughs> Kind of like growing up Pentecostal, you get saved every year at church camp, you know, over and over and over again. We have this beautiful little nativity set that we bought when we were in New Mexico. It was made by indigenous people there. And Mason, of course, is from New Mexico, and so that makes that one a little extra special. And then our newest nativity that we have is one that Mason bought this year where all of the characters, including the baby Jesus, are cats. We call it our captivity. <laughs> we love all of our little nativity sets. All the people and the creatures are there, the sheep, the cows, the angel, Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus, of course, and the three wise men or kings or magi, whatever you prefer to call them. I'm pretty sure that none of the nativity scenes that we have or any that we usually see around the Christmas season are very accurate. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty confident they're not. It's hard for us to grasp what it must have been like in ancient Judea, the time of Jesus' birth. We do know that over the centuries, like most historical events, a more charming version of the story has been created and cultivated. We remember it today as much more quiet and tender than it probably was. We have the benefit being on this side of the moment. As a historical event, we know how the story turns out, and we've created this romantic version, partly from historical evidence and partly from legend, but mostly from a desire to make all things Christmas into something almost utopian. 
but the Christmas story is as tragic as it is joyous. Over time, we've been able to step past that part of the story. The brutal and tormented tragedy of Herod's soldiers storming into Bethlehem and the countryside around it. Barging into schools and synagogues and homes and scooping up every child who was at least two years old and dragging them from their families and their pleading parents and killing them because a fragile, a fragile leader wanted so desperately to hang on to his power more than anything else. The killing of those innocents, some believe as many as 144,000 of them, is uncomfortable and unsettling. And it puts a damper on our joy to the world moment. But it is as much a part of the Christmas story as the baby Jesus who fled that rampage and survived. In contrast to our preferred notion of silent night, hundreds of thousands of grandparents and parents and siblings in a whole community and region were groaning because an abusive, paranoid leader was willing to do anything, whatever it took, to hold on to his position. We know that what we celebrate today probably doesn't much resemble what actually happened in and around ancient Bethlehem. Whether or not there were three or a hundred wise men, whether or not they were even men, <laughs> because there are a lot of historians and Bible scholars who believe that some of the Magi very likely were women. And it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter at all. What does matter is what we've done since. What have we done with the child? What have we done with the promises that came on that first Christmas? I love what Thomas Merton said. He once wrote, Today eternity enters into time, and time made holy is caught up into eternity. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The intermingling of eternal God and very, very temporal world and earth and us. To think that a God who's never ever been bound by time would find a way to be inserted into all of time's limits, formed by milliseconds and stacked into centuries and millenniums, to think that God would even be interested in that is so far beyond my comprehension. But that's just what God does through the birth of Jesus. His birth is legend. His impact on humanity, that's still a hard question to answer. You'd think that the words of Jesus would carry some weight, wouldn't you? Anyone would think that a religion that names itself after Him and claims His authority would also embrace His cause, you'd think. You'd think when a person identifies themselves with Jesus that they'd probably want to take on His identity and live and love and serve like Him. You'd think. I'm going to throw this out there. I believe there are a lot of people who identify as Christians, even flaunt it very proudly, who've never had an epiphany moment. 
Kenny, that's pretty arrogant. For you to say something like that, it's pretty arrogant. You're not wrong. It is pretty, it's pretty arrogant. As a matter of fact, when I say it, it reminds me of those early days in my ministry work when I was trying to be this young, hot shot preacher who'd say bold things just to get a reaction from the crowd. But I can't help but believe that if every person who called themselves a Christian actually embraced the teachings of Christ, I'm talking about walking in humility and being patient and being kind and merciful and being peacemakers and being forgiving and charitable and defending the weakest and the most vulnerable and weeping with our friends who were sad and celebrating with our happy friends and loving others who are hard to love at least as much as we love ourselves. And I can go on and on and on and on and on but all of those things are what should identify us as Christians. You'd think that in a nation where 63% of the population, over 200 million people call themselves Christians, that we'd see a lot more of those things. You'd think that we'd be a better nation. Back when I used to travel and sing uh, gospel music with my family, we sang a song called Holy Ghost Revival. Boy, it was a song. <laughs> it's a fun, high-energy song, and every time we sang it, the Pentecostals and the Shouting Baptists got to their feet, man. I mean, they'd take off and run, even a Methodist or two. It was... <laughs> you know you got them riled up with that. Sometimes when I would introduce that song, I'd say something like, um, more than we need an, uh, another election, and more than we need more education, and more than we need more religion, what we need is a good old-fashioned Holy Ghost revival. Woo! <laughs> They'd always shout back a big old amen. That always got them stirred up and fired up. Be honest with you, I would love to see something like that sweep through our nation. But being the Christian nation we are, if history is our guide or at least any kind of indicator, we'd probably find a way to manipulate that holy thing and turn it into a reason to divide one another, just like we have so many other wonderful things that Jesus intended to lift us up and unite us. And what we don't do that way, we turn into propaganda. We turn into something that we can market and sell. A revival wouldn't be bad. A revival wouldn't be bad at all. But maybe what we need instead is an epiphany. What's the difference, you ask? I heard you asking the question. Not everyone agrees on who the Magi were. But what generally is agreed upon is that there were very likely more than just three of them. They were probably a whole band or a whole traveling caravan of people who were traveling seeking for something mystical and something wonderful and something special. It's also very likely that they came, that since they came from so far away, they were probably of a different religion and a different ethnicity than the baby that they had come to honor. Some of my fundamentalist friends are going to get mad about this, but I believe that those magi from the East were not coming to Jesus to get saved. They didn't come to be converted. 
They came for inspiration. They came for wonder. They came for something special. He was at one point their destination, but within a moment or two, they had other places to go. Their time with Jesus was an encounter, but then they moved on. We want to believe that that moment or two, however long it was, made some form of a difference. So when we say that we need an epiphany, we're not just talking about a one-time aha experience. We're saying that we long for something that changes us, makes us better, leaves those we encounter with a sense that we care for them in a way that transcends human love and human comprehension. We need an epiphany that causes us to lean into the mystical and lean on to the sacred because we know that when we do, we'll be more committed than ever to working for justice, standing for the marginalized, speaking up for the abused, and walking with society's victims. Friends, for our sake, for their sake, if ever there was a need, Today, as much as any time ever, we need an epiphany. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Bluegrass United Church of Christ podcast. We'd love to have you join us for a service sometime. We meet on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at 500 Don Anna Drive in Lexington, Kentucky. You can find us online at bluegrasschurch.org.